0: This is TSC Now, a podcast by the Tuberous Sclerosis Alliance. Hello, and welcome to the November episode of TSC Now, sponsored by Equestive Therapeutics. As always, I'm your host, Dan Klein. In our August episode, we talked about advocating in the education space. And in this episode, we are talking about advocating in the healthcare space. Some of the common challenges parents, caregivers, and those affected by TSC face when seeking care and how they can work with their doctor to make sure they receive the highest quality of care. First, I talk to Dr. Paul Mullen, Director of Neurology and Epilepsy at the Medical Associates of Hudson Valley. We discuss a survey conducted by Questive on some of the most common challenges parents face when trying to administer medication to children with epilepsy, what parents and caregivers can do to be proactive in addressing seizures and working with their doctor, and how new technology can help alleviate some of these challenges. Here's Dr. Mullen. All right. We're now joined by Dr. Paul Mullen, who is Director of Neurology and Epilepsy at the Medical Associates of Hudson Valley. Dr. Mullen, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you for
1: the invitation, Deb.
0: Absolutely. So I wanted to talk to you because, you know, a recent survey conducted by Equestive Therapeutics found that parents and caregivers face a number of challenges when they're trying to administer medication. 53% of those surveyed said their children didn't finish the food that their medication was in. 70% said their children refused to take medication. 72% has said their kids have spit out their medication. What's your reaction to these findings? Are you surprised by these results?
1: Well, first, no, uh, not at all. I think this is a great, great survey. And just as a disclosure, I am a speaker with Equestive. And one of the very, very big challenges is getting children to take their medicines. And we know what an amazing challenge this is for the caregivers. This, I think, was a, a wonderful study that Quest did. And what they really did is they looked at caregivers who were taking care of children with seizures who were below eight years old. And, you know, how do you get a child to take a medicine? So they really looked at 50 parents and they gave them a very short questionnaire. And they found out that about 46% of the caregivers crushed a pill with food to give it to their child. That seems very, very reasonable. But then, about fifty-three percent of the children don't finish the food that the medicine is in. So you can imagine the amount of time that this takes to prepare the medicine, crush it, and then you've got about half of the kids are not finishing the medicine. The other thing we know is that about seventy percent of the children often refuse to take the medicine at some point. And this, too, is not surprising. Medicines can have a very bitter taste. And about 72% of the kids spit out their medicine once it's given to them. So again, about 75% of caregivers, it really poses a challenge how to get the medicine to my child.
0: How can parents overcome some of these common challenges? How do you get a kid to take medication that tastes bad? It's a
1: great question. And the first thing becomes not only that medicines can taste bad, at what age can you start teaching your child to take some medicines in the most common pill uh, form, which is a pill. Well, the first thing is a lot of children, number one, children that are below school age may not be able to swallow pills. Mm -hmm. That's the uh, challenge that we face. So probably below six years old, many children will not be able to swallow pill. So then the first thing is, all right, at what age can I start teaching a child to swallow pill and how can we do that? We'll get to the question about badly flavored medicine. So the first thing is, all right. What can I do to help a child learn to take a pill? Well, the first thing you can do is you can start practicing with school-aged children, kindergarten age children. And what you want to do is show them how to take a small pill and show them themselves. Put a very small thing, practice. Now, I know some people use things such as, have you ever seen those M&M minis? They're a great way, as long as your child doesn't have an allergy to the dye or you're not worried it's not a diabetic child, you can probably take this. You put it on the tip of the tongue and then you have them tilt the head back gently and practice is swallowing just with little sips of water or maybe milk. And they see how easily that the M&M mini goes down. So the first thing is the mechanics of swallowing a pill. And you really have to learn how to do that. Another thing you can do is by example, you can show a child how easy it is when you take your vitamin in the morning and show them exactly what they do. So first show, demonstrate, and then let the child try to take it themselves. The next thing then becomes, well, what about children younger than that that can't swallow pill? And you bring up a good point, things that don't taste good. Medicines frequently have either an acidic or a bitter taste to them. That's just the nature of medicines, Especially many medicines like seizure medicines like antibiotics. And it's a balance that the pharmacists or the compounders try to do. They really don't want to make the medicines taste too good. You don't want the children to think this is simply candy and want to more for it. But at the same time, they have that very bitter taste or the acidic taste that children really do not like. So what do a lot of people do? Well, they try to mix it with things to kind of mask the flavor. Some people before giving a medication will try to mask it by coating the tongue with something like a little bit of chocolate syrup or maple syrup or something first and then take the pill. And Sometimes it makes it easier for the child. Most people try to mix things in with things such as applesauce or a pudding that tastes good. And for children, this becomes much more palatable, but it still is. It's very time-consuming to take a pill, to brush a pill, some pills come in a sprinkle, and then try to mix it together, and then you've got to ensure that the child eats the pudding with the applesauce. One of the things, you know, why Equestive came up with is something called farm film. So, you know, farm film is something new. It's a brand new technology, and because of new technology, we can have this molecule, these new medicines, seizure medicines in particular. It is evenly distributed in the small film. The film has a berry flavor to it. It's placed on the tongue and then it dissolves on the tongue after the child closes the mouth. And then the child simply swallows the pill and it's absorbed in the stomach. It dissolves within 15 seconds and when the child swallows, he's got the full dose of the pill. It's really, really an amazing new technology to help children get their medications.
0: You mentioned that with traditional pills, 74% of caregivers said they were concerned that their children aren't getting a full dose of their medication. What are some of the risks associated with not getting a full dose of medication, especially when we're talking about epilepsy medication?
1: Well, the risk, of course, is a seizure and we know again there was a study that was published by Cranbury not that many years ago and it really showed that approximately 30 to 40% of the patients at some time do miss a medication many of the patients when they do miss that medication do have a seizure and Many patients don't feel comfortable telling their physician that they've actually missed medication. So again, you know, the, the biggest consequence we have with missed medications are breakthrough seizures. There's something else too. You know, we just mentioned teaching a child to try and swallow medicine. When you have children with severe epilepsies and you have cognitive impairment, some children don't have the mechanics to swallow pills easily and can't learn it. They have something called oral pharyngeal dysphagia. Fancy term for it. They really have an inability to swallow pills. They have mechanical swallowing difficulties. This is related to their neurological condition. And again, we know that in a syndrome like Lennox-Gastaut, one of the common seizure syndromes that we see children with tuberculosis, about 40% of the patients have oral pharyngeal dysphagia. So again, it's not just an age component. They really, because of neurological condition, cannot swallow pills. And this, again, is where something like arm film can really change the way we give medications to our patients.
0: When parents are facing challenges, either administering medication or having any other sorts of challenges, they immediately now go online, they go to social media, they seek advice from other parents. What advice would you give to parents when they're looking for information, to make sure that the information they're finding is accurate and reliable?
1: Well, you know what, that is a great, great question. The first thing is, there was a time when you could go to the web and it seems like we got a lot of very, very good information. Mm-hmm. The problem right now is that I think social media come a little bit of a free for all. And as a physician, our job is to you know provide education. And these days, there's been this little bit of a change where I see so many people, almost all the patients are coming in the office. And I love the fact that patients are self-educating. I think that's the beauty of the web. But these days, uh, an actual percentage of the appointment is explaining away some of the myths that people are seeing or hearing online. So a lot of the chat rooms are not really regulated. A lot of things online that patients but may not be good sound medical advice regarding different therapies. So I would really recommend that people go... There are certain organizations and support groups that have websites where the information is regulated. It comes from experts within the field of epilepsy. Probably one of the best sites, I think, is that from the Epilepsy Foundation of America, epilepsy.com. Another one is the Lennox-Gastaut Foundation, and that can be found at lgsfoundation.org. Another site that is very good is the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. There's also the Child Neurology Foundation and the National Organization for Rare Disorders.
0: Yeah, and building off of that point, you mentioned many of our partners that we've worked with in the past. What role can the TS Alliance play as an advocacy organization to be proactive about educating our constituents about some of the common issues they may face and how to overcome them?
1: Well, I think things like this are wonderful. Um, doing some podcasts. I think the site has some great information. I think it's where people can meet through different things such as uh, sponsoring speaker events, sponsoring patient and family education events, some of the charitable events such as the walks that take place that not only support research, but also where patients and family members get to meet each other and share what happens.
0: Beyond administering medication, what are some other common challenges parents and caregivers face? when caring for their child with epilepsy? Well,
1: one of the things, again, is knowing what to do when somebody has a seizure. You know, there are some certain things that people can do to help the parents and the doctor get better care. So I think, again, the key is education. Mm -hmm. It's It's important that people dispel some of the myths about epilepsy. You know, when you see somebody having a seizure, especially a loved one, it can be very frightening. We often talk in our point of think. let's think about what is a seizure. A seizure is the clinical manifestation of abnormal discharge of firing in the brain. We say, so normally our brain has a very organized pattern of firing. We hear some speech. It makes sense to us. Our neurons fire and we respond. Well, if those neurons aren't firing, the person can't respond. If that abnormal firing spreads to the motor or movement system, instead of telling the arm to go out and come back, as a normal motor system would do, everything becomes stiff and rigid. The person falls to the floor. There might be an echo cry as air is pushed out, and the person is not responsive. So first, we try to educate people about what is going on, to dispel Mm -hmm. some of the fear of seeing the seizure. And then we talk about, all right, we know what's going on. This is just an abnormal electrical storm. I'm not gonna be afraid of this, but I'm going to learn how to manage this. And what am I gonna do? Well, first I'm gonna lay the patient on the side. It's important that all family members know first aid. And it's interesting that seizure first aid can include, like I said, all family members, including siblings, and even children between four and six can know simple things from first aid, observe what's going on, call an adult or someone who can help, whether that be actually in person in the house or on the phone. But then we're gonna lay our patient on the side. We're gonna make sure we don't stick anything in their mouth. And then what we're gonna do is we're gonna track what happens during the seizure. Tracking what happens can help describe to the doctor so he may know, okay, This is the type of seizure that I'm treating. Make a note of every phase and sometimes write it down while it's fresh in your mind. These are things that will help when you go to see the doctor understand what happens during the seizure. You
0: you mentioned that seeing someone have a seizure for the first time is really scary. And you've mentioned that there are a lot of myths around seizures. What are some of the common myths you've heard that you've had to educate against?
1: It's very funny. So this morning... I was outside with my dog and my neighbor. We let our dogs run together. And I said, hey, I'm doing a podcast for um, patients with epilepsy this morning. And right away, she said, oh, I remember I went to the small Episcopal private school one of the kids in the class had seizures. And we were all ready with the ruler in case he had a seizure there in early morning prayers to put the ruler in his mouth so he wouldn't bite off his tongue. And, you know, this is such an old myth. And here I am with one of my neighbors. You know, it's uh, 2019. And that's still her concept of seizure first aid. So, the first thing is seizure first aid. Never put something in someone's mouth. Most of our parents know that. Turn someone on their side. They're not going to, you know, the swallowing mechanism might not be there. Some people may bite their tongue. There might be a little bit of blood. We just want to turn someone on their side and gently support their head so any secretions come out. In some cultures, some people are afraid to touch people during a seizure because it might be contagious. And absolutely, that's not true. Seizures are not contagious. You really, don't have any problem with going and giving, administering first aid and holding someone with a the seizure. There's a lot of myths that people with epilepsy are violent, postictal violence that, my dear, is extremely rare. Most rare. Most people are in need of your help and support. And again, for me, just understanding, especially for the family members, what is happening. The brain is firing. A person just becomes stiff and falls to the ground, and then just like a computer, it needs to reboot. There's a period where people may be a little bit confused, and that's a time to stay with someone and help reorient them while their brain is kind of recovering from the storm. I think another thing that's important is we try to see how successful we are with our therapies. So it's kind of important to know what's happening, and for the caregiver again, especially. Uh, for children who really can't always um, give us detailed histories, know things like the time and the date that the seizure occurred. What was the person that the doing at the stage of the seizure? Were there any missed medications that occurred? So again, not only knowing how to administer the first aid, observing what happens and writing it down, but keeping the seizure calendar and a diary will also be very, very helpful. And these days, there are certain apps that can have some seizure uh, for some medications patients actually to help them maintain their diaries. So probably that's the single most important thing. Making sure that you do take your medications. Non-compliance, as we said, is a very large problem with seizures. Keeping your appointment. Many of the seizure medications require what we call therapeutic monitoring. We monitor different things for people taking seizure medicines. We monitor blood levels. Many medications are processed either in the liver or in the kidney, so we may follow kidney functions. We follow blood counts. Some of the anti-seizure medicines may affect the bone marrow. So the first thing is you know, we try to have these things done on a regular basis. So it's important not only to keep your appointment, to make sure that the doctor has ordered certain labs that these labs are drawn and they're drawn in a reasonable time. So they're available at the time of your appointment. I think also having a seizure response plan, you know, a seizure can be, again, it's very disruptive. The biggest problem with seizures is they can come at any time, but it's nice that the different members of the family know what they're going to do during the seizure. Okay. I'm going to go provide first aid. I'm going to time it. If there's two seizures, I'm going to call EMS or I'm going to call my doctor's office to see whether or not we need to But having a seizure response plan is very important so everyone's not disorganized. I think they've had a seizure. This is the person who's going to go check. I'm going to administer the first aid. I'm going to get ready to call the physician or EMS
0: if it's necessary. That's really, really good advice. And I think that's definitely something that can help mitigate what is already a very stressful situation when your child is having a seizure. So my final question for you, what's one thing in epilepsy research that has you really excited right now?
1: Well, I think these new delivery systems are extremely excited. I have to say that. And again, we're looking at new delivery systems not just for uh, taking the meds daily, but also abortive therapies for seizures. And again, there are some studies and medicines that will be approved. We may be able to use this farm-filled technology to avoid seizures, and I'm hoping that that comes out. I think it's extremely exciting. I think that we haven't had, again, anything that powers the family, the patient, that comes out, so that if there's ways now that are coming out that the family, instead of calling emergency medical services and just waiting for an ambulance to arrive for someone a seizure, or having acute repetitive seizures, if there are new technologies, new delivery systems where we can either use a farm, Film or perhaps an intranasal to get something quickly to our patients, that excites me.
0: Yeah, I concur. And I think any advances to help overcome some of these common challenges in administering medication will be huge. So it's very exciting to see what's coming down the pike. Well, Dr. Mullen, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you sharing your expertise and giving parents really good tangible advice on how to manage their care and the care of their loved ones with epilepsy. You're welcome, Dan, and thanks for the invite. Our thanks again to Dr. Mullen for his helpful advice and to Equestive for sponsoring this episode. To learn more about Equestive, visit www.equestive.com. Next, I spoke to Dr. Peter Crino. Professor and Chair of the Department of Neurology at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, Director of the TSC Center of Maryland, and a member of the TS Alliance Board of Directors. Dr. Crino and I discussed the process of transitioning a patient with TSC from pediatric care to adult care, some of the challenges associated with that transition, and how parents and those affected can prepare for transitioning to mitigate some of those challenges. We also talked about how adults with TSC can best manage their care and the role that telemedicine may play in expanding access to TSC experts. Here's my conversation with Dr. Crino. All right, I'm now joined by Dr. Peter Crino. He is professor and chair of the Department of Neurology at the University of Maryland and director of the TSC Center of Maryland. Dr. Krinos, thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Dan. Thanks very much for having me on. So I wanted to talk to you, Dr. Crino, because you see a unique subset of individuals with TSC, specifically adults with TSC and transitioning adults with TSC. And this often is a challenging time for people with TSC because they face a whole new spectrum of manifestations and things that they need to keep track of. To start, I wondered if you can tell me at what age should people with TSC start the process of transitioning to care from adult specialists?
2: Sure. Yes, you are correct. My practice is unique. I started one of the first adult tuberous sclerosis complex practices back in the late 90s, thinking that I was going to see a small number of patients. And as it turns out, I ended up seeing lots and lots of individuals who were in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and even as old as their 70s. So, you know, tuberous sclerosis clearly is a disorder that affects the whole life spectrum, not just pediatric population. My practice starts seeing patients around age 12. I don't see younger school-aged children, and I don't see babies with TSC. I let my uh, very qualified pediatric neurology colleagues take care of those individuals. Mm -hmm. And what's the oldest age of a patient you've seen? 74 is the oldest new diagnosis I have made for tuberous sclerosis, and that gentleman remains... The oldest patient in my practice, so in thinking about transitioning to adult care,
0: how can parents start empowering their child to take ownership of their own
2: health care? yeah, that's a terrific question, Dan you know. When children are in the care of a pediatrician, pediatric neurologist, they usually are being seen with their parents in the room. And while the patient is clearly the focus of the exam, the parents are the ones that are doing most of the talking with the physician. They are the ones that are responsible for medications and scheduling and arranging visits and payments and and all of the things that go with the doctor's visit. I think it's a slow process, but I think it is a process that has to be undertaken. So I think some of the things that can be done to help children and teenagers transition to adult-level care really focus on looking at their own needs. So the biggest one, I think, is medications and medication compliance. Most teenagers are able to understand that if they require medications for epilepsy or some other part of the TSC spectrum, that they can begin to take ownership for that specifically knowing that they have to take their medicines every day, being responsible for taking those medicines every day, knowing when they're getting close to being out of medication so they can ask for a new prescription. These are the kinds of things that allow some autonomy for individuals and a way for even young people to begin to take some ownership of the disorder. I think the other challenges uh, getting to the doctor visit, of course, is allowing teenagers to have more participation in the visit, so not just passively sitting and letting the parents doing the speaking, but rather speaking up when the physician asks about seizure frequency, anxiety, other things that are related to tanned, other symptoms such as shortness of breath, pain anywhere. These are things that teenage patients can really be very helpful with and help physicians understand the needs but it also empowers the patient to begin to sort of speak for themselves and do so in a confident fashion. So I think focusing on on medicines, medication compliance and being responsible for that, and also speaking up at doctor's visits, I think are two first steps towards gaining some autonomy over your individual care. You talk about tracking
0: seizures, tracking symptoms, tracking how you feel. How does that information empower you as a physician to then chart a course of care?
2: You know, the nice thing is that as a teenager begins to take responsibility for these, the conversation really shifts from the physician to the parent to the physician to the patient. And the parent becomes then sort of the passive entity in the room. Obviously, they're important and they will add commentary as needed, but it really formulates a dialogue. And anytime you're having a direct dialogue with a patient, it really augments the doctor-patient relationship and it really does allow me to get a sense of what the patient's needs really might be, do we need to adjust their seizure medicines, do we need to adjust medicines for anxiety, do we need to adjust doses of drugs like everolimus or sirolimus and it just changes the entire dynamic of the visit so that the patient now is the one who's really engaging with a physician and I'm having an active dialogue with that patient.
0: And TSC manifests in everyone differently, and some people are more severely affected than others. How does this transition process differ when we're talking about independent and dependent transitioning adults?
2: Yeah, that's a really great question. Obviously, we have a lot of individuals who face significant challenges, whether it's neurobehavioral, autism, intellectual disability, anxiety disorders that make successful and adequate communication at a doctor's visit limited or or frankly impossible. I think that for some individuals where communication with the physician is not possible, there are still ways of sort of feeling more autonomous and actually on the part of the physician generating a sense of autonomy. So, you know, one of the things that we work very hard to do is to instruct our resident physicians and our fellows that when you're in a room with a family and an individual who has intellectual disability or autism and may not be verbal, that It's important that you make eye contact with the patient, you speak to the patient, you don't make pretend the patient's not there, you don't speak about the person in third person, and you really do try to bring them into the fold. You'd be surprised the number of times that I've gotten nonverbal individuals to give me some feedback or information, and it's a terrific way of bonding with patients. It's been my experience over, gosh, 25 years of practice that almost any individual has the capacity for interpersonal connection, and just sometimes it takes a little time, But working and trying to speak to each individual patient as if they're the most important person in the room will generate a sense of autonomy. They may not be able to tell you what their medications are or step up to take responsibility for their healthcare, but you are indeed creating a sense that they are the most important person in the room.
0: Yeah, I think that's such great advice for any physician who deals with people with significant neurocognitive challenges. And I appreciate you sharing that because I think that's really, really great. Zooming out a little bit, the healthcare, system is tough to navigate for anybody. What are some things that parents can teach their kids to prepare them for dealing with things beyond just their own care?
2: Yeah, that's a really important question. And even just going to your primary care doctor for a routine visit, checkup can be daunting for some individuals. It involves scheduling your own schedule, but the physician's schedule, insurance payments, co-pays, sometimes pre-authorizations. It really is a minefield for individuals. I think in a disorder like two sclerosis, where it is a multi-system disease, you just take those complexities and multiply them exponentially. So I think one of the things that is important for, especially for for teenage patients and those who are undergoing the transition to adult care is to first of all, really take ownership of who their physician is to know their physician's name, their contact information, where they go for their visits. And don't be afraid to actually call your physician and say, hey, I have a question I want to ask and really begin to learn that autonomy. I think over time, I've been impressed at the number of individuals who, as they transition from teens to their early 20s, really do begin to take ownership not only of their physician scheduling, but also scheduling appointments, filling out prescriptions, filling out any forms that are needed, participating in pre-authorizations, and really slowly sculpting this process where they can take whole responsibility. It's definitely not something that happens overnight and it can take a little bit of time. And to be honest with you, I've seen plenty of 30 and 40 year old individuals who still every now and again are completely frustrated by access to healthcare. But I think taking a teenage person and really just slowly enculturing them into what it takes to get a doctor's visit, to show up, to be compliant, how to participate in the insurance, knowing what kind of insurance you have, bringing your insurance cards to the visit, knowing that you have the ability to pay a copay as needed. These are little things that over time will become just routine. Yeah, I
0: think those are all great steps to take to start taking ownership. You mentioned how some of these challenges are magnified and that's especially true because TSC is a multi-organ disorder. So often patients are seeing multiple specialists and bear the burden of having to coordinate care amongst these specialists, whether they're seeing a neurologist or a nephrologist or a pulmonologist. How can patients work with their doctors and especially their primary care physician to share the burden of working with all of these different specialties.
2: That's right, Dan, and I think I think you said that well. It, it's a big challenge to kind of figure out who's the person that's really in charge of all this, and it's not uncommon for individuals affected by TSC to have to see four different specialists and, you know, balance all those appointments and medications and diagnostic tests and surveillance tests. It, it's more than some some individuals really can handle. I think an important thing to do is, first and foremost, obviously, if you can get connected to a TSC clinic where there is a designated TSC specialist or set of specialists, that's going to make life much easier because someone's going to step up and really take charge. All of the clinic directors have agreed that one of our responsibilities in caring for individuals is that de facto, you are the one that is going to stand up and kind of take responsibility and serve as a champion for that person. Being point of service, being the one that's going to help coordinate visits to whether it's nephrology, pulmonology, dermatology, and using sort of a a hub and spoke model. um, That's been the way I've run my centers over the last, gosh, almost 20 years now, and it does work well. I think out in the community, if you don't have access to a TSC clinic, things get a little more complicated. But there I would really offer that patients should have a frank discussion with their primary care physician and ask them if they are willing to serve as a champion for this. And, you know, primary care physicians are very good at arranging multiple visits for individuals who have multiple complex medical needs. Tuberous sclerosis is not the only disease process where there may May be a requirement for multiple specialists. Certainly some types of cancers will require that, cardiovascular disease, some rheumatological diseases. So primary care physicians are often very good at serving as the champion for multi-specialty care. They may be uncomfortable at first because they may not know about TSC, but that's when it's important to have our constituents really direct primary care physicians to the TS Alliance webpage so they can learn about diagnostic criteria and surveillance criteria and feel as though they're current in what they wanna deliver for their patients. So you've
0: started to allude to this. A lot of people can't see a TSC clinician or go to a TSC clinic. What other things should they be looking for when seeking out a primary care physician who may not be as familiar with
2: the disease? Sure, I mean, I think the ability of a primary care physician to see a complex medical disorder like tuberous sclerosis, I think varies from practitioner to practitioner. Some are obviously better than others, but the notion of seeing multiple, Multi-system diseases is certainly not foreign to primary care doctors. And so, as I said, most are usually pretty good at it. I think it's very important for patients themselves, if they are able to, to be as educated as possible about tuberous sclerosis and specifically the surveillance criteria. Specifically, what do I need to have done every year or every couple of years to make sure that my health is maximally followed? And I think the TS Alliance website has provided a terrific resource. Just about anybody can go on the site and look up what the surveillance criteria are. You can take a snapshot on your phone, bring your phone in, you can print them out the old-fashioned way, but bring these to your primary care doctor and say, are you aware of these surveillance criteria? And if they are, great, but if they're not, you'll have helped educate that physician and now you'll have a partnership. Really, if you think about it, one of the most important aspects of ongoing lifelong care in TSC is adequate and successful surveillance. Much of the challenge that we face in TSC and the medical problems really have to do with failures in surveillance. If you follow the guidelines and stay on top of imaging of whether it's the kidneys or the lungs or the brain, Major problems often can be headed off at the pass and action can be taken so that they never actually become a problem. The other thing is if you're not near a regional TSC clinic, I have to tell you that at several of the last couple of meetings where the TS directors were in the same room, we all collectively agreed that we are very willing to handle phone calls from patients, constituents out in the community, even if they're not our own patients and even if they're far away. I have to tell you, in my career, I've handled probably a hundred phone calls from people, not only within the United States, but Canada, Mexico, South America, the European Union, Africa, China, basically just calls to say, what do I do? Where do I go? I've had people send me CDs with their films and EEG reports and all kinds of things. And all of the TSC clinic directors have agreed collectively that we're willing to help get people to where they need to be, or at least provide them with some guidance over the phone. I think finally... It's important that patients, if they have the opportunity to connect with a local TSC chapter, there's GSC chapters around the United States and really internationally, that can be very, very helpful because at the grassroots level, there are individuals at each chapter who can point you in the direction of practitioners who may not be running clinics, but for example, may be familiar with TSC and know how to respond to some of the questions that are so important.
0: Yeah, I think it's so empowering to hear that many of the TSC clinic directors are so willing and Helpful in collaborating with patients because I think having access to experts really helps people feel relief that they're getting the best quality of care possible. And you mentioned that patients should work to educate themselves as much as they can about the surveillance and management of the disease. And, you know, we find that many of the people affected by TSC are the experts, they're very well versed in not just the manifestations of the disease, but the science behind it. So how can patients work with their doctor and have that conversation to foster collaboration and encourage them to work with TSC specialists like yourself?
2: Yeah, no, that's a very good question. And again, it it is somewhat variable provider to provider, but in my experience, providers want to deliver good care no matter where they are. And I have, uh, in my own practice, on many occasions have patients come in with disorders other than tuberous sclerosis. They may be rare disorders and they've been dealing with this for their entire life. So I, I try to be as open as possible and willing to listen because you really do learn from patients, the direct upfront experiences. I think it's vitally important to form sort of this concept of a collaboration with your physician. It really is a team effort at the end of the day. It's never just a physician and it's never just a patient. So having that conversation up front with your primary care doctor saying, look, I have a complex genetic disorder that can infect multiple systems in my body, spanning my brain, my skin, my heart, my lungs, my kidneys, and really say, I, I'm going to need you to learn a little bit about this. Are you willing to do that? I would be surprised if most practitioners would say no, most would be very willing to learn. And if you have a practitioner who says, gosh, I'm just not willing to do that, yeah, that might be an indication for you to find somebody who's a bit more willing to collaborate with you.
0: One of the ways to fill some of the gaps in allowing people who otherwise wouldn't be able to see a TSC expert is through telehealth. And I know at the TSC Center of Maryland, you are working to expand access to telehealth. Can you... Talk a little bit about how telehealth works and, how people
2: can get access to it. Telehealth is a very exciting new technology that I think is here to stay. It has been deployed around the United States, initially in the setting of the care of patients with stroke, as well as patients who are in neurocritical care units. It has extended to the neurobehavioral health world and psychiatry patients, and many psychiatry programs around the United States use telehealth. The technology of telehealth is actually quite simple. It usually allows a face-to-face device-based communication between a provider and a patient. There are a number of commercial platforms that are available that allow you to essentially log in and use something akin to Skype, for example, which allows you to basically see the patient, the patient sees the physician, and it is usually password protected and encrypted so your health information is secure. Typically in the room with the patient, there is someone who's known as a telepresenter. That individual is usually a healthcare provider, typically a nurse, physician assistant, nurse practitioner, and they participate in the visit by essentially carrying out the physical exam. So telehealth would, in my practice, is carried out at a community hospital out on the Eastern shore of Maryland. That's about a two and a half hour ride from downtown Baltimore. So patients like very much that they don't need to come into the city. They drive into the community hospital, park their car, come in, sit in a nice quiet exam room, and we log in together. And then I do a standard one hour visit with questions and answers. I review their medicines, their imaging studies, any laboratory studies that are recent. I ask the telepresenter to help me go through a physical exam. I allow plenty of time for the patients to ask me any questions and then I make a recommendation for care. We make a follow-up appointment at some time in the future and then we sign off and they, again, get my contact information. So it's kind of just like a regular doctor's office, only done through the proxy of a computer. The nice thing about it is that it does diminish travel time for many patients. It's clearly a technology that, if deployed correctly, will allow tertiary care providers to get out into communities, underserved rural areas where there normally is not tertiary care. So I think, as I said, it's a technology that's here to stay. Many health systems are embracing this technology, and it will allow tertiary care doctors to really apply their craft out in areas where there aren't usually tertiary care hospitals. And the feedback I've gotten from patients, Dan, I must say, has been universally positive. Everyone really likes the fact that they don't have to travel long distances and they find the engagement through the video platform kind of the same as what we use on our phone now with FaceTime and other platforms. It's, it's not all that novel and people are, are frankly very comfortable with it. What are some of the current barriers
0: to wider adoption of this technology?
2: Well, so the uh, technology has to be adopted by uh, a health system or a group practice, but but somebody's got to purchase the technology. There has to be a contractual arrangement with the site where the patients will be coming. And that contractual arrangement, again, is not only for space, but also for the telepresenter, the uh, any fees for IT and, you know, connectional services, troubleshooting. And then there's obviously a component for billing for physician services and the capacity for the physician to order tests and medications. So there is a little bit of, you know, information technology that goes into just setting up the platform. But, but actually, having done it recently now for as many as six different hospitals, it's not that complicated, which is why I think the technology will begin to expand rapidly. In previous conversations with TSC and TS Alliance leadership, we've talked about using this technology to facilitate our international engagements. So in places throughout the world that are underserved, where there's no TSC clinic Setting up a tele, what I call a tele-TSC initiative, I think is very prudent uh, and I think is something that TSC, uh, TS Alliance leadership is is very interested in.
0: So if someone were interested in participating in telehealth with the University of Maryland, for example, how would they go about doing that and setting that up?
2: Yeah, so right now we are getting ready to launch our program, sort of go live in January, where it's going to be seamless for patients. The simplest thing to do now is to email me directly or call the number for our TSC Center of Maryland, which is on the TS Alliance webpage, and we can get you slotted in. Now, our telehealth initiative right now is designated for the Eastern Shore of Maryland. We haven't branched out to other parts of the state, but we are in the process of doing that right now.
0: And how do you see telehealth in
2: general expanding and adapting over the next couple of years? Oh, I think it's going to be the. I I think it actually is. I don't want to say the wave of the future because I think that wave is actually here. I think what will expand is the ability for technological connections between physicians and patients. And to be honest, Dan, I would imagine a. Day day when people won't even have to come to a center. They'll just kind of do it from their home. As long as the software allows safety, encryption, and protection of personal health information, this is the kind of technology that I think at some point will be, you know, you'll be sitting in your living room and you'll do your visit from the living room and save costs in that way as well. So I think, frankly, the sky's the limit for this. There's lots of creative people thinking about how to deploy telehealth. And what started out as sort of a wow technology in the ICU, I think, is going to be kind of a common. Place technology for standard routine outpatient medicine.
0: Yeah, that future is very exciting. And I think it addresses many of the issues we're facing now where there are just too many people with TSC who can't get to a clinic and who can't see an expert. You know, empowering them to be able to get that quality of care from their own home is going to be a game changer for sure.
2: I completely agree with you, and I and I would absolutely want to just reiterate for folks listening that it is really the case that if you're in a state where there's a TIC clinic that's that's not close to you, but you you want to get connected. Truly, every TSC clinic director has agreed to field phone calls from constituents basically anywhere. So find someone you want to call, feel free to give them a call. And if you don't get an answer, try somebody else. But but ultimately, someone will be able to, to connect you. And if you can connect to a local TSC chapter, assuredly, they're going to be able to connect you to either folks at the TS Alliance or a regional physician who has some knowledge of tuberous sclerosis complex.
0: That's, that's really great advice. So finally, what's some other advice you would give to either transitioning adults or an adult with TSC to encourage them to advocate for
2: their health? The transition period, we could speak to that first, is is often challenging for patients. And the scenario typically is that they have been cared for by a skilled, trusted, compassionate, dedicated pediatrician and or pediatric neurologist for as long as they've had TSC. In fact, all they've ever known in terms of care has been pediatric care. Pediatric care tends to be very patient and family-centered. It's often very holistic and it's it's great care, let's face it. The transition to adulthood can be a little frightening because the adult world of medicine isn't quite so patient-centered, or rather family-centered, it's really more patient-centered. And so kind of the holistic, affectionate feel that you get in the pediatrician's office seems uh, a little bit absent. I think it's important for adult physicians to recognize that and really try to make that transition as smooth as possible and realize that adult physicians are just as concerned about you and just as compassionate. It's just that the style of care delivery is is a little bit different. Secondly is the understanding that this is a new physician relationship, which means that the patient's going to have to develop new trust in this individual. And it's often a challenge to not view everything that the adult doctor is doing in the context of what the pediatric doctor did in the past. They are two very separate disciplines, two very different approaches. And the challenges facing a five-year-old with tuberous sclerosis are very different than those facing a 45-year-old. So there has to be a little bit of recognition that that this is a new relationship and the new physician brings expertise that really wasn't there in the pediatrics uh, group. There's also sometimes new treatments that are available that maybe wouldn't be used in a child, but now can be used in an adult. And ironically, Sometimes what the adult doctor will do is actually revisit treatments that people have had when they were children because sometimes a second try is a very important exercise and you can have therapeutic success with the drug a second time that may not have worked the first time. So I think transitioning from the pediatric group to the adult group does require some courage on the part of patients and families and it indeed does require that patients begin to advocate for themselves a bit. Now the second part is that when you're an adult and you're now established with an adult practitioner... You have to advocate for your care much the way you would with any other chronic disorder like, for example, hypertension or diabetes or cardiovascular disease, which is that You do have to be responsible about physician visits. You have to be compliant with medications. It's vitally important that patients are compliant with periodic scans to just check the size of kidney lesions or the size of brain lesions. These are very, very important things because they allow the physician to take steps, to take actions that are gonna prevent conditions from getting worse. As I said previously, the vast majority of challenges in tuberous sclerosis from a clinical perspective often can be prevented by just simply staying on top of surveillance uh, and staying on top of diagnostic tests and laboratories. Finally, you know, I think as an adult patient, it's been my experience that most adults embrace the diagnosis of tuberous sclerosis has a lifelong challenge. Those who are able to will learn lots about it and will be very knowledgeable about TSC. There's still always questions, and so it's it's good to have a dialogue. And I think for those that are not able to because of tanned or intellectual disability or autism, their families still play a very important role. Now, the final piece of it that is a bit poignant and a bit challenging is that as TSC adults age into their fifth and often sixth decade of life, Their lifetime dedicated and devoted parental caregivers get older and become older adults, and then they begin to face their own health challenges themselves, which may interfere with their ability to participate in care and serve as advocates for patients. So ironically, the transition from teens to adulthood may be equally challenging as the transition from adulthood to older adulthood when the patients really do have to become autonomous and and take care of themselves. And this is a very delicate time. It involves a lot of attention by the caregiver to make sure that families have finances in place. They have succession plan in terms of who's going to provide care. There's long-term care for plans in place. Insurance has been looked into. So the late 50s, early 60s transition can be often just as challenging as the teens to 20 transition.
0: Yeah, I think all of that is very good advice. And you know, you talk about the fear of making that transition, and often I've heard people describe it as a cliff. And so, being proactive about managing that transition and working with your doctor and all of the other advice you've shared help people mitigate some of that fear. Well, Dr. Crino, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me today. Thank you for your leadership with the TS Alliance. And thank you for all of the great work you're doing at the TSC Center of Maryland.
2: Thanks, Dan. It really was a pleasure chatting with you and uh, your questions were really terrific. My thanks to Dr. Crino
0: on his incredible advice on how those with TSC can best advocate for their care and how doctors can be allies in ensuring that those patients receive the highest quality of care. To learn more about the TSC Center of Maryland, visit the link in the episode description. That'll do it for this episode of TSC Now. Our thanks again to Equestive Therapeutics for sponsoring this episode. If you wanna help the show, you can rate us and write a review wherever you listen. That really does increase the exposure of the show and help us reach more people. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Finally, if you want to reach out to me about the podcast, you can always send me an email to tscnow at org. On behalf of all of us here at the TS Alliance, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to TSC Now. Our theme song is Take Charge by Young Presidents. You can find all our episodes at tslions.org slash tscnow. Thanks for listening.